Well, good morning to all of you here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are tuning in from uh, one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, down in Bridgeland, and also over at the Crowfoot Theatres in the northwest part of Calgary. Before I get into the message, uh, I just want to thank you for praying for my dad. For those of you who may not have heard, he had a major stroke this last week, and, and we really do appreciate your prayers. I just have one little story I want to to share with you in regards to that. It happened this last Monday. Uh, we were informed by the medical staff that after flying him to Calgary, they would be returning him to his, uh, uh, to, to Medicine Hat, uh, to the general hospital there. And they arrived on Monday morning to do just that. The paramedics uh, uh, wheeled my dad uh, from his room to the ambulance bay at Foothills Hospital. And as they were doing that, we followed behind. And as we neared the ambulance, um, I just um, sensed the Lord prompting me to pray for my dad's recovery, and given my dad's health was poor even before he suffered the stroke, I hesitated for a moment wondering exactly what God was up to or uh, how he wanted me to pray, but I followed through anyways, and uh, so with the paramedics, paramedics standing around there and some medical staff, Gwen and I laid hands on my dad and prayed for him, and uh, then he proce they proceeded to put him in the ambulance and uh, take him to Medicine Hat. A couple of hours later, uh, he arrived in Medicine Hat at the uh, general hospital there, and my sisters were there to greet him. They had seen him the day before in Calgary, and they were absolutely shocked by the transformation they saw in him. Uh, prior to leaving Calgary, um, Dad could not see out of his left eye or had limited movement in his uh, limbs on the left side. He hardly spoke at all. And when he arrived in Medicine Hat, he could see out of his left eye, he was moving his left limbs freely and was talking up a storm, asking for coffee. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So my, my sisters immediately called me and uh, got me on the phone with him, and the first thing he said was, would you get me some coffee? And then uh, 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 they just told me that uh, I was not going to believe uh, the transformation, so they sent me a video clip, and, and Gwen and I were just, we, we were just, it just set us back in our seats when we watched this little video clip. Could hardly believe this was the same man that we'd prayed for just a couple hours before. Now, you know, I don't know what um, God has in mind for my dad. Uh, his prospects, medically speaking, are not real good. Um, but I share that with you just as a little reminder that when God prompts you to pray, pray. Amen? John and Nancy Ortberg, they tell of a time that they were on their honeymoon and they decided to try fly fishing. And they were having problems catching fish and so they decided to uh, talk to an experienced fisherman. And he said to them, to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. He said, to fish, life is about maximum gratification of appetite and a minimum expenditure of energy. To a fish, life is see fly, want fly, eat fly, and that's about it. A rainbow trout never really reflects on where his life is headed. A girl carp doesn't say to a boy carp, I don't feel like you're as committed to our relationship as I am. Fish just don't say stuff like that. They're just a collection of appetites, if you think about it. A fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. Ortberg says, if you think about it, fish are not very, not very bright. 
Here we are saying, hey, fish, swallow this. It's not the real thing. It's just a lure. You think it will feed you, but it's not going to feed you. It's designed to hook you, and once you're hooked, you're as good as cooked. <laughs> but fish never notice. Fish have been falling for this for years. You'd think that fish would wise up. You'd think that they'd notice the hook or they'd see the line. You'd think when fish see their fish friends go for a lure and then just suddenly fly off into space. <laughs> never to return. They would say, I'm not doing that. But they don't. They never learn. Now when it comes to moral failure, it seems that we humans never learn either. All the way down through history, there is a story that just keeps being told again and again in ancient scrolls, in the Bible, in books, in modern newspapers and magazines. A respected, successful leader self-destructs at the peak of their career and falls from grace, falls from power, or at least goes into a serious tailspin. Remember the story of David, king of Israel, who was at the zenith of his career? In fact, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 14 verse 17 says, David's fame spread throughout every land, and the Lord made all nations fear him. He's admired by all. And then suddenly in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read how one evening, David is out on his balcony. And his eye catches the form of an unusually beautiful woman. And his looking turns to lust. And his lusting turns to a fixation to have her. And he calls for her. And he commits adultery with her. And as you read the story of David, you give your head a shake at this point, wondering how could this have happened to a man like David, this incredible man I've been reading about here in the scriptures. How could this have happened to him? A man after God's own heart. You find yourself saying, David, what were you thinking? Whether it's King David, whether it's General Proteus, Proteus or former presidential candidate John Edwards, or world-renowned golfer Tiger Woods. Stories like this make a strong case that when it comes to moral failure, we tend not to learn very well from the lives of others. And for every story that makes the headlines, there are thousands of similar stories most of us have never heard about that are every bit as painful and devastating. And the question on the minds of many is, how does this happen? Why does this keep happening? Someone has said, the road to moral failure is rarely a blowout or something that happens suddenly. Most often, the road to moral failure is the result of a slow leak, a series of small indiscretions. Well, this is Jesus' primary concern here in the passage that we are looking at in our study here of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew 
chapter 5. Now, in this passage, Jesus is describing what his kingdom is like. The character and the attitudes his followers will display through the power of the Holy Spirit living in and through their lives. And in the section we're looking at right now, Jesus gives examples of the kinds of behaviors and thought patterns people who are committed to his kingdom will display. In verse 21, Jesus addresses the sixth commandment, and he essentially says murder doesn't start with a knife or with a gun. Murder starts in your mind and in your heart. It starts with anger that is allowed to grow and to fester. And as we're going to see in the passage we're looking at next, Jesus addresses the seventh commandment, and he says, you can break the seventh commandment without ever touching someone. You can break it fully clothed. Adultery and sexual sin in general doesn't begin with your lips or with your hands. It begins in your mind and in your heart. It starts with a lust that's allowed to grow. And so with that in mind, would you please stand and join me in reading this next passage from Jesus' sermon here together. You have heard that it was said... Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to ask right now that you would focus our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that you would remove distractions, that we would truly hear from you, Lord, and that we would have the courage to respond to whatever it is you say to us. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into this passage, I want to make a few preliminary comments. First of all, I'm aware that the the subject today is an emotionally charged one that may reawaken pain or hurt or shame in some of you. And, And I want to just say right up front that it is not my desire or my intention to do this. My purpose is simply to help us to understand what Jesus is saying here and what it means for us today. I have not just selected this passage for today. It is the next passage on the Sermon on the Mount, and here we are. We're going to study it together. Jesus said, the truth will set us free. And as your pastor, my prayer is that we would all be set free to live the life that God wants us to live and to live in victory in Jesus Christ. Secondly, even though Jesus is directing his comments here to married men, his words apply also to married women. In fact, they apply to unmarried men and women as well. While adultery, by definition, is a married person being sexually intimate with someone other than their spouse, in this passage, Jesus moves quickly to talk about the seductive power of lust that has the potential to escalate not only to adultery, but also fornication or sexual intimacy between two unmarried individuals who are not committed to one another in marriage. 
And so while these words are directed toward those who are married, they're also directed toward the unmarried because how you deal with lust in your life before marriage will impact the health of your future marriage because of what you bring to that marriage. And thirdly, Jesus is not trying to be a killjoy here. In Matthew 19, verse 5, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God invented sex and lovemaking and said it was very good. There is nothing sinful or dirty about it when it occurs between a man and a woman in a committed marriage relationship. Jesus is not seeking to destroy our pleasure or abolish our needs or, or our drives. He is simply wanting to protect us, to alert us to the fact that sexual sin is serious business. It has serious consequences whether we believe that or not because it strikes at the core of our being, at our very soul. When we're sexually intimate with someone, we give them a piece of our soul. And so with that in mind, let's drill down and examine more carefully what Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 27 again. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Now Jesus is not talking here about observing an attractive person walking by and thinking to yourself, wow. That person is attractive. He's not talking about a look that gives a momentary spark or a feeling of desire or appreciation of beauty. I mean, if you've stopped noticing someone is attractive, then you need to check your pulse right now because you may be dead. All right? Because, folks, we're all wired up to appreciate beauty. On the other hand, lust is the decision to move from appreciation of someone's physical attractiveness to fixating on a person and fantasizing about them. And what it would be like to be in a physical relationship with them and to replay that movie or that YouTube clip over and over again. It is shifting the focus of your passion and desire away from your spouse and onto another person. Jesus says, when you're doing something like that, you have already committed adultery with that person in your heart. Now, of course, let me be clear. Physical adultery has significantly greater consequences than mental adultery. And so rationalizing and saying, well, I've already committed adultery in my mind. I may as well do it physically. That is a huge mistake because there is a huge difference between physical adultery and mental adultery. Some of the same issues abide in both. The sense of betrayal and so forth. But talk to someone who has gone through uh, the pain of adultery and they'll tell you there is a big difference in terms of how it messes with your family and your mind and all kinds of things. Jesus draws our attention to lust manifesting itself in our life for it can escalate and royally mess up our, life, our marriage or what we bring into our future marriage. There are a number of ways that lust can manifest itself in your life. 
If you are fantasizing about someone else in inappropriate ways, wishing that you were married to that particular person rather than to your spouse, believing that life would be so much better if you were with them than with your spouse, then lust is having its way in your life. Lust is at work in your life if you would have to admit your identity is based not on who you are in Jesus Christ, but on your ability to attract the look from others. If you are investing hours working out, for example, to stay fit, which is a good thing, but inside you know it's mostly about wanting to appear sexually desirable. And if you are investing all kinds of money purchasing clothes that accentuate your body and hours doing your hair and piling on the makeup not to look your best for your spouse for a special occasion, but to regularly attract attention and awaken desire in others towards you, you know that lust is at work in your life. If you are jealous of someone who is more attractive than you are, if you find yourself flirting a lot, whether directly or by email or texting or on Facebook, if you tend to mistreat make fun of, look down on those that you would consider are unattractive. Or if you have a sexual addiction like spending hours on adult websites or are constantly watching racy and steamy television shows and movies, lust is at work in your life. The fact is, friends, we're all sexually broken. Let's not kid ourselves. And there is a price that comes with this. The first price of lust is that it degrades a person's nobility as created in the image of God. You see, instead of looking at the person as made in the image of God, lust reduces the whole person to a place and a, a piece of flesh to be controlled, to be used for one's temporary sexual urges. I remember being at a layover in an airport terminal a number of years ago. I was having a little something to eat, and across the table from me um, sat a young husband and wife, perhaps in their mid-30s. And maybe they were just tired, but they looked thoroughly bored with one another. We were there well over an hour, and they never said a word to each other. And then an attractive waitress walked by, and this husband started staring at her. And he didn't stop staring at her. Wherever she went, his eyes went. And this went on for some time, and I can't tell you how upsetting his behavior was to me because I realized when we men do this, we aren't thinking of that waitress as a person or as a daughter of the living God, but as an object to fuel the fire of our little fantasy. I can only imagine how his leering must have hurt and humiliated his wife. He probably didn't think she noticed, but are you kidding me? If I noticed, she noticed. Friends, God wants us to love our spouses with all our hearts, 
He wants us to love and celebrate their values, their faith, their personality, their feelings, their passions, not just their bodies. We live in a culture that's obsessed with bodies. We have people buying clothes that accentuate our bodies in ways they should not be accentuated. And it's important to point out that lust isn't just a male problem. Some time ago, a young mother shared with me how she had fallen into an emotional affair with someone. An emotional affair that she just rationalized away as innocent flirting and fun. Because, you know, it hadn't gone into anything physical. But in time, she had to admit, it became all-consuming. And ever so close to moving from the emotional to the physical. And one of the things that she said to me that played a big part in, in heating up this emotional affair was texting, emails, and the use of Facebook. She said, I said things in emails and in texts I would never have said in person. And she has since shut down her Facebook account. All that to say that this is not just a male problem. This is also a female problem. And if we permit sexual fantasies to persist in our minds, they will eventually erode away our love for our spouses and our passion for our spouses. Gary Vanderet says that it is ongoing sexual fantasies, most often fueled by pornography, or in the female world, these emotional affairs I just talked about, that erodes a spouse's love for their mate, that turns active, loving, caring, passionate husbands and wives into passive, uncaring, uninvolved husbands and wives who begin to treat each other like a kitchen appliance because the focus and the passion is directed elsewhere. We hear much today about sexual freedom. And yet the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12 that freedom benefits. It does not harm or degrade or belittle either myself or others. A second price of lust is that it enslaves. It just doesn't degrade, it enslaves. In 1 Corinthians 6.12 again, it says, Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. No sin is as enslaving as sexual sin. The more it is indulged, the more it controls the indulger. A number of years ago, a pastor and father of three anonymously submitted an article in a leadership journal that I subscribed to, which he entitled, The Anatomy of Lust. In it, he described in frank detail his downward spiral in the area of lust over a 10-year period of time. He wrote... I learned quickly that lust, like physical sex, pointed in only one direction. 
You cannot go back to a lower level and stay satisfied. Always you want more. A magazine excites, a movie thrills, a live show really makes the blood run. I never went as far as outright prostitution, but I've experienced enough of the unquenchable nature of sex to frighten me for good. Lust does not satisfy. It only stirs us. I no longer wonder how deviants can get into molesting others and other such perverted things. Although such acts are incomprehensible to me, I remember well that where I ended up was as incomprehensible to me when I started. Folks, it is so easy to allow habits to master us. Often a person says, I will do what I like. When the person, what the person really means is, I will indulge in the habit which has me in its grip. There is no freedom here, friends. Only bondage. The fact is, if there is anything, or for that matter, anyone that I cannot give up, that I cannot hold with an open hand, to that I am enslaved. The Apostle Paul set the true standard for a follower of Christ when he said he would not surrender the control of his life to anyone or anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, for to me to live is Christ, period. Lust degrades. It enslaves. And unchecked, it will destroy. It will destroy lives, marriages, and families. So how do we resist this temptation to lust? Well, first of all, we need to resolve to keep God's standards of purity. We need to be serious about this. To give you a sense of how serious Jesus was about this, look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, of course, the question is, is did Jesus actually mean for us to take this literally? Well, Daryl Johnson says, I don't think so. He says, the reason I believe that is because I can lust with both of my eyes closed. And that's true. Jesus wants to protect us, to free us. And so he calls us here to take radical action. He uses this radical language to prompt that in us. He's calling us to discipline our eyes and our hands from leading us down a destructive path. John Stott says Jesus is using dramatic figures of speech here to encourage us toward mortification or death of our sinful nature. Our sinful desires, rather. Not the mutilation of our physical bodies. Jesus is calling us to stop playing games. To stop playing with fire and to take serious action to do so quickly and decisively. Now, if we're serious about keeping God's standards of sexual purity, there's a couple of things we need to do. And the first one is we need to seriously commit to trust in God's word. 
All of us have a choice to make in life. Are we going to trust the word or are we going to trust the world? Are we going to trust Christ or are we going to trust our culture? Not too long ago, I was talking to a young woman who told me about her former small group leader. A wonderful, gifted young lady, apparently, who came to a place where she figured that God wasn't coming through for her. He wasn't giving her what she wanted when she wanted it. She wasn't getting any younger, and God hadn't yet introduced Mr. Wright to her. And so she decided one day that she couldn't trust God anymore. And she jumped the fence and decided to take matters into her own hands. She decided to put her trust in the ways of the world rather than the Word of God. She walked away from the kingdom of God, from God and the church. She began to frequent the bar scene and sleep around and is now living with some fellow she hopes to marry one day, but it's been years already and things aren't looking so good. We need to decide whether we're going to trust the word or the world. Putting your trust in God's word means you have a deep conviction that God is right in relation to what he says about life and sex. And that you are committed to following his ways. No compromise. For example, a growing number of people today believe it's okay for an unmarried couple to be sexually intimate as long as they love each other. They would agree that the Bible clearly speaks against sexual immorality, but they believe the phrase sexual immorality refers only to casual sex, to one-night stands between people who hardly know each other. They don't believe it refers to sexual intimacy between two unmarried people who really care about each other. And you see, this is what we often do. We come up with our own idea of what we think the Bible says. So let's look at what the scripture says. To really address this issue, we need to go back to the creation account and examine what God had in mind in the beginning before sin and evil and selfishness entered the world. If you really want to know the heart of God on a subject matter, go back to the beginning. So turn with me to Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his, what? To his wife. And they will become one flesh. Now the words one flesh refers to sexual intimacy. And this statement that I just read here, this verse I just read here, is God's statement on the moral context for sexual intimacy. God says sexual intimacy is to be between a man and a woman who are united in marriage. Notice it says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Not his girlfriend, not his date, not his fiancée. No, it says his wife. So listen carefully. If this statement here in Genesis 2 is God's moral standard or framework for sexual intimacy, we can logically conclude that any sexual relationships that are outside of that context is what the Bible refers to as sexually immoral behavior. 
Which means anytime you see the words sexually immoral in the Bible, you know that God is talking about any kind of sexual intimacy that is happening outside of the context of a man and a woman who are committed to one another in marriage. And so when Ephesians 5.3 says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. We know that this could refer to one of the following. Fornication, or two, unmarried people being sexually intimate regardless of their gender. Adultery, or a married person being sexually intimate with someone other than their spouse. Or it could refer to any other form of sexual activity including relations with siblings, children, parents, animals, and so forth. Now, folks, as I've already said, our God is a loving God, and like any loving father, his love for us compels him to be honest with us, to set up standards that will protect us and to keep us safe and healthy. We need to trust him in this. That if we engage in sexual immorality as he defines it, it will be detrimental, even destructive to our emotional, spiritual, and physical health. Not to mention the health of our present marriage or future marriage. Resisting the temptation of lust begins right here. Making a serious commitment to trusting God's word. Believing that God's way is the best way, the only way to true fulfillment and joy and peace in this life. Furthermore, if we're serious about keeping God's standards of sexual purity, we'll need to commit to deal with temptation immediately. Again, in verse 29 and 30, Jesus, in effect, says, whatever it is that causes you to sin, cut it off. Put an end to it immediately. He's calling us to stop playing games, to stop dabbling in sin, to stop justifying our sin, to stop rationalizing away our sin and our activities and our behaviors that we know are messing with our thought life and to take serious action, to do so quickly and decisively. He's saying, you can do something about this. Yes, God is strong. He is all-powerful. He will give you strength. He will give you help when you call out to him. But Jesus is saying here, when it comes to lust, you are not a victim. You have the right and authority to say no. You can stop exposing yourself to images and to activities and to people who awaken lust in you or move you down into an ungodly pathway. William Barclay says, what Jesus is saying here is, anything which helps seduce us to sin is to be ruthlessly rooted out of our lives. If our eyes are exposing us to images and thoughts that are seducing us to evil, then we need to act as if we did not have eyes and stop those activities. If certain magazines, if certain romance novels, if certain movies television programs awaken lust in you, then stop being exposed to them. Now, is this being prudish? Well, some might say it is. But to paraphrase Jesus, it is better to be prude 
a prude than to perish in the fire of lust or to face the hellish consequences that unbridled lust leads to. Cut it off. If certain relationships cause you to lust, cut it off. If certain events or certain activities cause lustful cravings, don't attend them. You know, studies show that a person on average will see an estimated 14,000 sexual references in a year on regular television. Studies show that teens who watch lots of sexual content on regular TV are more likely to initiate and participate in intercourse and sexual activities than those who don't watch shows with sexual content. Over the last 12 years, the number of sex scenes on TV has nearly doubled, with 70% of the top 20 watch, most watched shows having five scenes per hour involving sex, typically by people not married to each other and at times by people who have just met. You know, if a couple that we don't know were to waltz into our home and start undressing and having sex on our living room couch. In front of our kids and in front of our family, we'd be horrified. We would call the police. And yet many families today hardly blink watching a couple do just that on television, in their living room. This stuff has crept into our lives and we have grown numb to it. We laugh along with stuff that's just plain crude and vulgar and we hardly give it another thought. And no one says anything lest they be labeled as prudes or spoilers of good fun. Steve Otterborn, in his book, Every Man's Battle, he had a teenager named Kristen talk to him one day and this is what she said. She said, our church youth group is filled with kids faking their Christian walk. They are actually taking drugs, drinking, partying, and having sex. If you want to walk purely, it's easier to hang around with non-Christians than hang around with Christians at church. I say that because non-Christian friends know where I stand and they say, that's cool, I can accept that. The Christian kids mock me. They laugh at me. And they ask, why be so straight? Get a life. They pressure my values at every turn. And you know, this isn't just happening with Christian kids. This is also, this thought pattern is happening with Christian parents. I've talked to enough youth pastors to say that some of the biggest pushbacks they get are from parents. I mean, what are we going to do? If we can't watch these movies and this and that, I mean, gee. Folks, to whatever extent that reflects our thinking or the thinking of our kids, we need to wake up and smell the coffee. When was the last time you actually put aside time to be alone with the Lord and asked Him what He thought about the stuff that you are watching, listening to, the activities that you're engaging in? When was the last time you as a couple or as a family have sat down together and 
read what the Bible has to say about purity and sexual immorality and talked about how you can honor God's standards for sexual purity. In the movies that you watch, in the programs that you watch on television, the stuff that you do on the internet. When was the last time that you and your Christian friends were open-minded enough, and I underline open-minded enough, and bold enough to have a frank discussion about how the humor that tends to be pervasive in your group, how the talk in your group, the activities and the kind of the movies that you watch as a group aligns to the principles of purity and the godliness in the scripture. Now believe me, and please hear me clearly, I am not advocating that we all become legalistic, self-righteous prudes. Oh God, keep us from that. I don't even want to go there. I'm simply asking, is it possible we may have gone too far in the opposite direction in the name of our freedom in Christ? And might we actually be dishonoring God's standard of sexual purity and just have grown numb to it, oblivious to it? Jesus essentially says here in Matthew 5, if we want to resist the temptation of love, the very first thing we need to do is we need to resolve to keep God's standards of sexual purity. We need to make this a matter of discussion. We need to be aware of this. Secondly, resist temptation to lust by doing what God wants you to do. One of the reasons that King David was lured into adultery was because he wasn't fulfilling the role God had called him to. He was idle. We are very vulnerable, friends, to temptation when we're sitting around vegetating, watching grass grow. And so replace those bad habits with good ones. Get on to Jesus' agenda. In the words of Philippians 4.8, replace lustful thoughts with whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. The reality is you can't break a well-established pattern of thought by telling someone to stop it. I mean, me standing up here and telling you to stop thinking lustful thoughts, it just doesn't work. If you say to yourself, I will not think sexual thoughts, what's going to happen is you're actually going to think more sexual thoughts. The Bible teaches a different approach. We are to fill our mind, replace what's on our mind with good and constructive images and information, and to fill our lives full with knowing and serving God and others. You know, in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul challenges us to live with the awareness that the day of the Lord is approaching, that life will not always go on forever as it is, and that where we stand and where those that we love and care about stand with God is serious business. And it's with that in mind that he says in verse 12, the night is nearly over. The day of the Lord is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the the daytime, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What's he saying? He's saying, focus your thoughts and mind and your energies on Jesus and living all out for Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus and living for him, the more the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Thirdly, if you are unmarried, resist temptation by being alert to the state of your relationship with the opposite sex. In Proverbs 5.15, it says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Now, if you look at the fifth chapter of Proverbs, you will quickly realize that the entire chapter is devoted to the subject or as a warning against adultery. And so what's really being said in this verse that I just quoted is be faithful to your wife and give her your love alone. Now, for the person who is married, this is a clear call to be faithful to your wife, not only physically, but also in your thought life. What we may miss here, however, is that this command can also be applied to the person who is presently unmarried. God is saying to the unmarried person, be faithful to your future spouse. Now, by giving him or her your love alone. He's calling the single person to remain sexually pure, to give himself or herself to their future spouse. I had a young college student talk to me some time ago now. Basically, he asked me, how far can I go physically with the woman that I'm dating? In other words, you know, just how close can I get to the edge? You know, just how close? And still, you know, everything be okay and cope and sync with God. And so I posed this scenario to him. I said, let's say that you and I are good friends and we're both single. Now, even though we don't know it yet, the girl that I'm dating will one day be your wife. And so we're growing close, your future wife and I. And one day I come to you and I ask you the question that you just asked me. As a Christian, how far do you think I should go physically with this woman? Knowing that this woman that I'm courting is going to be your wife one day, where would you want me to draw the line in my physical relationship with her? Oh man, he said, I never thought of it that way. And you see, that's one of our problems. We never think about these things. He knew that where this was going, of course, and he didn't like the conclusion. But he smiled and he said, well, okay, I guess I, I wouldn't want you touching her at all. And I said, exactly. Go do thou likewise. <laughs> Realize that the woman that you are with is the daughter of our Heavenly Father and will be someone's wife someday, possibly. Respect her God-given dignity 
and take the focus off exploring her body and more on exploring her mind, her values, her convictions, what makes her tick, her future plans, her personality, her faith in Jesus. Spend more of your time seeking Jesus together, praying together, serving Jesus together, reaching out to others who are in need together. Fourthly, if you're married, resist temptation by making your marriage all that God intended it to be. Guard against temptation. In fact, the best way to guard against temptation, to lust and toward an affair, is to invest deeply in your marriage. Make it clear to those in your sphere of influence that you have made a vow, that you are committed to your spouse. Say to them through your actions, by the way you dress and everything else, don't even think about flirting with me. I'm off the market. Stop dreaming about what might be with someone else. And instead, think romantically only about your marriage partner. And constantly think of ways that you can communicate to that person that is so dear to you that you treasure how much you do love them and treasure them. Speak respectfully to one another. Be kind and considerate to one another. Be intentional about serving one another. Be intentional about spending time alone with each other. Be intentional about praying for and with one another. Be intentional about being... uh, open to one another. Be intentional about holding one another accountable and being honest with each other. And be very intentional about making your sexual relationship healthy and doing whatever is required to make it healthy. Getting whatever help you need to make it healthy. Fifthly, resist temptation to lust by finding a trusted, godly friend in whom you can, you can be honest and talk about these kind of issues with. If you don't have a friend like that, then ask God specifically to direct you to one. One of my friends that I'm really honest with is my wife, Gwen. When I muster up the courage to be honest with her about it, temptations I'm feeling or issues that I'm battling with, And she reaches out to me and prays for me, doesn't take my head off, reminds me of her unconditional love. I find us not only growing closer as a couple, but victory over temptation is so much easier. Finally, resist temptation to lust by being obsessed with Jesus. You know, in Psalm 51... David faces his sin of adultery with Bathsheba head on. He asks for God's mercy to wash away his sins and to blot out his transgressions. He has been miserable for a long time. And he asks God to blot out his transgressions. And then he makes this statement in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 
In other words, David's saying to God, restore to me the joy of our friendship again. Because I've lost it through this little side deal that was going on with Bathsheba. And friends, that is the fundamental key to resisting temptation to lust. Too many people give in to temptation because they focus more on the temptation than on Jesus. They get obsessed with the sin when the way to victory is to be obsessed with Jesus, walking with Jesus, listening to Jesus, doing what Jesus calls you to do. Galatians 5.16 says it so well. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. King David started down the wrong pathway. Not because he happened to see Bathsheba bathing one day. No, he started down that pathway long before he saw her. When he had stopped abiding in the Lord. Please understand this. You are loved and accepted by the Lord. You really are. If you're a child of his, you are. God is far more interested in having an authentic friendship with you than he is in you living a perfect life. So why does he have all the scriptures in here that says to you, you know, live this way, don't do this, do that. Why is that all in there? As his child, he wants you to live his way, to obey him, to follow him, not to gain his love and acceptance because if you've put your faith in him, you already have his love and acceptance. God wants your obedience for the same reason that a loving parent wants his or her child to be obedient so that it will go well with that child. And so your friendship with him will blossom and grow. He doesn't want us focusing on all the ways that we can disappoint him. He wants us to stay focused on him and to enjoy him and to follow him daily. He wants to do our day with us. He wants to walk with us and talk with us, advise us, help us, and empower us to live in victory over lust and other temptations that come our way. Which causes me to ask, what are we really obsessed with? What are you really obsessed with? And if you're not sure, ask the Lord to reveal it to you. What makes your adrenaline flow? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? Are you obsessed with living all out for Jesus or with living the good life, however it is you define it? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Perhaps you've been unfaithful to your spouse or the spouse you hope to marry one day. You've been struggling with regret, perhaps shame, even as you've been listening to this sermon. And I just want to say three quick things to you. 
First of all, you are not alone in your sin or your regret. There isn't a person in this place, including me, who hasn't fallen in some way in this area. And secondly, forgiveness is possible through Jesus. If you're struggling with guilt from the regrets of the past, if you are unmarried and have already been sexually intimate with someone, Jesus, through his love and his grace, will perform surgery on your soul. He will sew your soul back together again. He will make you whole if you ask him in faith. He died, he rose again to make our healing possible. Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that we could be freed from its penalty. But friend, you need to humble yourself. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to be honest with him and stop playing games with him and ask him to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life. And you can do that right now. You can do it in your heart. And as you do, the Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you, purify you from all unrighteousness. And finally, I want to say to you, you can change. When you repent of your sin, you are in that act saying to Jesus, I'm turning around and I am going in the opposite direction. And when you ask him to come into your life, he will invade your life. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will empower you to live a life that's pleasing to God. Not a life of perfection, no. But a life set on the direction that God has in mind for your life. And then just a word to those of you whose spouse has been unfaithful. I don't want to minimize your hurt, the humiliation, the sense of betrayal that you must feel. But your marriage will never make it if you harbor bitterness. And I just want to say you will never really make it if you continue to harbor bitterness. Your marriage will never make it if you throw it in your spouse's face all the time, every chance you get, and you make them pay in other ways. The Bible says we all have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all blown it one way or another. And how terrible it would be if God refused to forgive us. Jesus taught that when we humble ourselves and we choose to forgive, in that act of forgiveness, we are indicating that we understand and that we have fully embraced the grace and forgiveness that Jesus died to provide for us. I challenge you to make a decision to forgive for your sake, for the sake of your marriage and your family. Would you take a moment right now just between you and God and confess whatever needs to be confessed and after you've done that ask the Lord to restore the joy of your salvation to restore your relationship with him once again and your desire to abide in him always. Just take a moment and do that right now.
Would you please stand for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you again for sending your Son and for his teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here who is aware that lust is at work in their life. Anyone who can identify with the destructive path that King David was on. And I pray, Lord, that as they confess their sin and reach out to you in faith, that the miracle of grace that occurred in David's life would occur in their life right now. I pray that, they, that, that you will cement in the mind of every person here that you are not a vengeful God, but a loving God who accepts us by your grace and who warns us and disciplines us and prunes us so that it will go well with us in this life. I want to pray for anyone who's drifting from you, perhaps on the edge of giving into a particular temptation that may lead to destruction. I pray the words of Jesus today would serve as a flashing yellow light to help them to see it is a way that leads to darkness and to joylessness and despair. And instead that they would draw near to you, that they would draw near to others and be open and honest about their struggles and find hope and direction and peace in you. Lord, we surrender all to you. But we also look forward to cultivating a joyful, vibrant relationship with you. I pray that it may be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs you so desperately. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was a tough message to give. I want you to know it came from a heart of love as your pastor. More importantly, it came from the Lord. From the Lord. God be with you.